Well, we, we again pray for Stephen that the Holy Spirit will powerfully work through him, give us ears to hear and hearts to respond, and may we continue to embrace fully the call to missions and to be your evangelists, even in this city. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay. It's amazing to be here. I mean, just as uh, Joel said, he never envisioned I might become the chief of staff for Jews for Jesus, uh, nor did I. Uh, in fact, uh, I said on Wednesday night, uh, when I wrote my testimony booklet up, my title was going to be Not Looking for Jesus. Uh, I wasn't looking for him. He was looking for me. Uh, and I would have never thought I'd be serving with Jews for Jesus. I am uh, both surprised, oh, thank you, surprised, delighted, and excited to have this opportunity this whole week at TCF. Um, Joel gave part of the history, but there's a number of roots and intersections. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, you just heard I prayed with Joel, and that's all we need to say right there, but I prayed with him to receive the Lord in 1975, and it was in 1980 here at a service at TCF that we heard, uh, or I heard, it was right in a moment in my life, and my wife, Laura, we were praying for direction. Lord, what do you, we've been working in Chicago for a year after we got married, what do you want us to do? And we were here and heard the testimony of a young Jewish, no, not Jewish, a young woman who had just spent a year in Israel in a discipleship training program, and my ears went, what? And uh, so we wound up doing that the next year, spending a year in Israel, and it was a life-changing experience. And then, of course, in 2007 and in 2011, I was here at TCF for the memorial services of my in-laws, Joel and Rocky and um, Laura's parents. So I know that this church, uh, your DNA is missions. I mean, this morning, it's what we've been hearing about. And wow, to be the speaker at your missions conference is pretty incredible. I I went to your website, and I love your mission statement. I'm going to read it. TCF is dedicated to the training and releasing of laborers into the harvest, locally and around the world. And uh, Joel mentioned it again this morning. Amazing that you guys have sent or had missionaries uh, through the years in 47 countries. Wow, 47 countries. Well, this morning, I'm going to talk about a people group. I bet you can guess which one. But uh, <laughs> a people group you don't normally hear about in mission sermons. Uh, my people, the Jewish people. And I'm going to preach, I'll be candid, I'm going to preach from a passage that I don't normally preach from. In fact, I, I don't think I've ever preached from Romans 11 this mor- uh, before, but I'm going to this morning. So we're all going to experience a little bit of new territory. Um, I'm going to try to cover the whole chapter. So as I say tongue-in-cheek, put your seatbelts on. We may move a little fast, but um, the good news is I'll try to drive us through that passage carefully and... Uh, it's way better than me driving you around on the road, as my wife could testify. So here we are safely inside. We should be okay. Uh, <laughs> if, if you mention Israel and the Jews today, 
extremely polarizing. People immediately choose sides. They either love or they hate Israel and the Jews. Go online. You'll find people railing against you know, the war in Gaza, calling Israel pure evil. I've seen that kind of rhetoric easily and quickly spill over into Jew hatred. On the other side, though, you'll find people defending, you know, to the teeth uh, their support over Israel and the Jewish people, no matter what they do. Uh, here's a snapshot of a, where we stand in a, a few small points. Israel, I don't know if you know this, Israel just stood on trial at the world court in The Hague, uh, in the Netherlands there, on South African charges against Israel of committing genocide against the Palestinian people in Gaza. Mm -hmm. Anti-Semitism has spiked 400% since October 7th when Hamas attacked Israel, igniting the war. As this conflict rages on, Christian support of Israel is waning, it's declining in the face of the onslaught of pro-Palestinian propaganda and demonstrations around the world and pro-Israel Christians are weakening in their support for the need of Jewish evangelism, preferring instead to support Israel financially, politically, but avoiding mention of the gospel out of fear of offending the Jewish people. Folks, it's a mess out there. It's a mess. And in some ways, we see these same dynamics that I've just described in Paul's day when he wrote the letter to the Romans. He hadn't yet visited Rome at that point when he wrote this letter, but he had a, a love for the believers there and felt the responsibility to guide them in their faith. Let me give you the background just a little bit on this letter. The church in Rome most likely began from uh, after that first day of Pentecost, uh, just after, you know, some 49, 50 days after the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord, that first Pentecost, uh, it's one of those pilgrimage holidays, so Jewish people from all over, including Rome, came to Jerusalem as they're commanded in the Torah. And Peter preached an incredible sermon that you can read about in Acts, right? And people came away, 5,000 were saved, or 3,000, I can't, there's two numbers there, I don't remember which one it is, but um, so very likely some of these Roman Jewish folks went back to Rome as believers, and that was the, the seed of the, the first church there, and in their zeal, how many of you have been a new believer in your life? Come on, I know most of you, right? Uh-huh. Okay, well, you know, if you haven't raised your hand, if you, i got to loosen you up. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't like people just sitting there like this, okay? So this, you got a Jewish guy in your pulpit this morning. you got to. All right. But um, um, when you're a new believer, at least my experience, probably your experience, you're really zealous. You might be dumb, you don't know a lot, you're ignorant, but boy, your zeal is over the top. Well, that's what happened in Rome. So much so that they, uh, according to Roman historian Suetonius, riots were starting over this guy named Crestus. That's what his, he's called, which is probably, scholars think, a Latinized version of Christ. So 
uh, the Emperor Claudius, he didn't know the difference between a traditional Jew and a, and a Jew who believed in Jesus. They were all Jews in his mind. And because of all these problems that were starting over this guy named Crestus, he banished the Jews from Rome. So it was a big thing happening here. And uh, by the way, that, that banishment is mentioned in Acts chapter 18. And it happened around the year 49 or 50. So about 16 years after that first Pentecost, and about seven or eight years before Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. So the circumstances there resulted in the church of Rome becoming a Gentile majority church because the Jews are kicked out. There might have been a few secret ones who stayed, who knows. But um, Paul felt a responsibility to instruct them to straighten out any mistaken ideas they might have regarding God's intentions for the Jewish people, the, the, Christ, you know, the church and, and Gentiles. How does this all work together? So the entire letter, beginning in chapter 1, addresses this question of God's ongoing plans for the Jewish people. For the sake of time this morning, we're going to jump into the end of a very mm, in-depth argument that Paul uh, unfolds there especially in chapters 9 through 11 of this book. But we're going to jump into chapter 11. And in the first couple of verses, Paul answers a question that in light of the current events of his day would have been on people's minds. This question would have been uh, maybe a topic of discussion. Has God rejected the Jews? After all, the church had opened its doors to uh, Gentiles and now they're pouring in. The emperor recently expelled the Jews from Rome. That's got to be a sign of God's disapproval of them. So hasn't God rejected Israel? Well, Paul gives a resounding answer, a very loud answer, no. At the end of chapter 10, right before we get to where we are beginning, Paul points out that he, despite the fact that Israel's been disobedient, the Lord extends his hands to them all day long. He hasn't given up on them. He hasn't stopped loving them. And those of you who are parents, you should get this. You should get this. All right, our kids start out as cute little babies. Babies, yes, you know, they cry. You have to get up, you're tired in the middle of the night. But babies are easy to love because they're just so doggone cute, right? But then they become teenagers. Uh-oh. Teenagers, I could tell you stories of my kids when they were teenagers, but I don't want their cousins to pass them on. So, uh, <laughs> But do we, do we reject our teenage children? Of course not. They misbehave. They say the wrong things. But we keep on loving them. We don't reject them. Sometimes, at least in our family, maybe yours, you have to exercise tough love. You have to be strict or you have to be stern with but your intent is to help them in the long run. You never stop loving them. You don't reject them. So it, Paul describes this tough love in verse 22 of chapter 11 when he talks about the, the kindness and the sternness of God. Tough, God's tough love. To the Romans, Paul was living proof that God had not rejected the Jewish people and that he had a continuing plan for them. Paul says, I am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. That's my Paul accent. But, um, 
By the way, just as an aside, (laughs) just as an aside, Paul calls himself here an Israelite, but in Acts 21, he called himself a Jew, and in Philippians, he calls himself a Hebrew. Interesting. Those three terms are synonymous, so we don't need to get confused on that. But today, I stand before you, guess what? I'm living proof as well that God has not rejected the Jewish people. I am a Jew. How do I know? I took a DNA test. (laughs) 100% Ashkenazi Jew and uh, I'm a descendant of Abraham I happen to be from the tribe of Levi my last name Katz is a Hebrew acronym Kohen Tzedek which means righteous priest so in the synagogue it was always my family or others who are Kohanim priests who would be called up to uh, read from the Torah first etc and to pronounce the priestly blessing so I know what tribe I'm from like Paul I'm living proof. God hasn't rejected us. In verse 2, Paul makes an interesting point that he says he, God foreknew his people. What's he saying when he says that? Well, I think in part, at least, he's saying he foreknew Israel's future ups and downs. He knew all they would do, all they would be, both good and bad. And guess what? It's true of us as well. God foreknew us, but he chose us in advance. He knew everything about us, what we would do in our lives, our ups and our downs. Yet we can rejoice and we can rest in the fact that our salvation is secure. God isn't surprised by what we do, whether we're doing, having a great success or we blow it. Uh, once he sets his love on us and he graciously chooses us, the Lord is not capricious. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't reject us. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, he who began a good work in us, he will bring it to completion. Later in this chapter, Paul may challenge the notion of ethnic security, but he doesn't challenge eternal security. In verses 3 to 6 of this chapter, Paul gives us a glimpse into God's amazing plan. He's preserved a faithful remnant of Jewish followers. Now, uh, the only time I think we use remnant today is, um, at least in my vocabulary, is when we're talking about carpeting, Uh, right? You know, or or cloth. Uh, Yeah, you know, they, they put this carpet down, they cut around the edges, and they had to cut off, and then they got some scraps left. You know, it's a little piece of this large room of carpet. That's the remnant. It's the small little bit. Well, God has preserved a remnant of faithful Jewish followers. And that was not new in Paul's day. He tells us it was the same in Elijah's day. In the face of widespread idolatry by Israel, Elijah despaired. We remember the story, thinking he was the only faithful follower of the Lord. And when the Lord looked at Elijah and saw him in kind of a depressive maybe self-pitying moment in time, the Lord gently dealt with him, correcting him, encouraging him, and saying, Elijah, there are 7,000 others who share your faith in me, the God of Israel. Well, it might be that some of us have sometimes felt that you were the only believer at your job, or at home, or at school, or... uh, you know, somewhere else. You maybe feel despair, 
Occasionally, you're the only one. I'll tell you one of my earliest prayers. When I became a believer in 1975, one of my first prayers was, Lord, praying for my family, Lord, give me just one. I want to see at least one member of my family come to faith in Christ. I still pray it. I haven't seen the one yet. I still pray it. I've often felt isolation, awkwardness, longing, sometimes even fear of danger when I think I'm the only one who gets it, the only one who calls on the Lord. But then God reminds me, you're not alone. You're not the only one. Folks, if, if you find yourself slipping into that dark place of self-pity, allow God to speak to you. I'm here to tell you you're not alone. Look around the room. This room, right now. The room is filled with people who share your faith and who love you. Well, Elijah, it's interesting, think about it. Elijah didn't recognize the other folks, those 7,000 who were part of the remnant. He had maybe rubbed shoulders with them. He might have been friends with some of them. I mean, I don't know. But he, he couldn't see it. He didn't recognize, he couldn't identify them. How come? Uh, can we know any better than Paul did? You know, who's in the remnant? From outside appearances, when you just look at people, you can't really know who's in the remnant, who's not. When Paul first came to faith, think about this, the other believers, they didn't know he was in the remnant. They were afraid of him. This guy, Paul, he's been terrorizing us. No, he can't be, we can't, you know. And The truth is, only God knows. Ultimately, only God knows who's in the remnant. Um, I've always said, uh, I don't know if you'll connect with this or not, but I've always said that missionaries are like explorers. And here's what I mean. Explorers know there's an overland route, there's a mountain pass, there's a waterway that somehow gets to the other side, but they don't know where it is and they're looking for it until they find it, right? Well, as missionaries or as believers... We know that God is at work in people's lives, okay? But that's an internal thing. We know He's saving people and adding to His faithful remnant, but when we see a crowd of people, we don't know who's who. We don't know in whose life God is at work. We don't know in which lives are, are being responsive in a positive way to the Lord. We just see face after face and a big group of people. Well, to me, uh, we're, we're explorers. And we need to be ready and willing to share the gospel with all people and allow God to do His work. My wife thought I should tell you that in Jews for Jesus, you know, we cast our nets out over a crowd of people hoping to catch Jewish fish. And when we pull that net in, oftentimes we have a bunch of Gentile fish who, who receive the Lord. But you know what? We don't throw them back. So, so it's okay. Everyone needs the Lord. Um, in verses 5 and 6, Paul confirms God's unwavering choice and foreknowledge of Israel and of you. Our salvation is not based on what we do. We know this. It's based on His grace. And all we can say to that is, whew, right? <laughs> As in Elijah and Paul's day, there's a Jewish remnant today, and I'm part of it. But now we have a new question. Okay, we understand the remnant. But what does God do with 
the rest. You know, you got the remnant, you got the rest. And the rest is bigger than the remnant. What about them? Well, in verse 7, Paul tells us that they are hardened, which doesn't sound very good. God prevents them from perceiving and understanding, which is not a new thing. Because Paul quotes from Isaiah 29 here, when he says, Isaiah says, God gave them, speaking of Jewish people, a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear. So this hardening didn't start in Paul's day. Been around, you know, at least 700 years when Isaiah lived. But when we think of hardening, we have to ask, is God unfair? Why would he do that to people? Does he stack the deck against his own children so they can't find their way and follow him? May it never be. The word for hardening here in the Greek, and I don't read Greek, but I read books that explain the Greek. <laughs> so the word for hardening there is actually a medical term. And it's used in Greek literature to describe broken bones that have healed, uh, calloused hands, you know, from working hard, cataracts that harden the lens in your eye, and thus sometimes it's even translated in certain writings as blindness. Um, the word appears four places in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's used of Pharaoh. That's a big example we know, and also of the Jewish people. In Pharaoh's case, it's interesting, if you read all the, in Exodus, all the chapters on Pharaoh, you'll see that he hardened his own heart just as often as it says God hardened his heart. So it seems that Pharaoh's hard heart was just as much his doing as it was God's doing. And God simply completed and set in cement Pharaoh's own choice. Uh, one of the early church scholars, Origen, said this. It's interesting. Listen up. It is not, although his English is a bit tough, but uh, I'm going to, Charles Spurgeon in a moment clarifies it in more modern English. So Origen said, It is not incorrect to say that the sun, by one and the same power of its heat, melts wax indeed, but dries up and hardens mud. Not that its power operates one way uh, uh, you know, on the mud and the other way on the wax, but that the qualities of mud and wax are different. Interesting. And Charles Spurgeon says, The same truth that draws one man to God pushes another man further away, as it is not the nature of the truth itself that determines who is saved and who isn't, but it is a matter of man's own free will or voluntary response to the truth. God commands the truth to be preached, knowing that many will be hardened by it, but because he also knows that sun will be drawn to him and saved by it as well. So the same sun melt, melts wax, hardens mud. And that's how it is with the Lord's truth, the gospel, in the human heart. I'm sure many of you or some of you who have shared the gospel have seen this. I know I have. I've been chased, spit on, punched, uh, etc. by some people. But other people, when I'm sharing the very same words, they listen quietly. And they get softer. And they weep and they repent and they pray to receive the Lord. I'm saying the same thing to two different people and get a very different response. And uh, that's how it is. People are ultimately responsible for their hard or their soft hearts. The good news is that in the case of Israel, this hardening is temporary. Thank you, Lord. 
the stumbling that Paul mentions in uh, chapter in verse 11 is neither forever nor is it comprehensive. If it was forever, Paul wouldn't continue reaching out with the gospel to his Jewish people. But what did he do? Every town he goes to, he starts in the synagogue. Um, he, he didn't give up. The good news is that because of the temporary stumble by the Jewish people, salvation has come to the Gentiles, even to Tulsa. <laughs> Paul states God's purpose in this more than once. He says, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. That's, that's cool. I'll tell you, that's true in my case. Um, it, you know, when I was a teenager, an older, you know, later years teenager, 17, 18 years old, I was looking for meaning. I was looking for truth. And I crossed paths with a few Christians, um, certainly Joel and Laura, who had given uh, her life back to following the Lord. And I had a roommate uh, freshman year in college. That poor guy. Um, when I was writing my paper on why Jews didn't believe in Jesus for a, you know, a Jewish professor, I asked him a few questions, tough, you know, kind of tough Jewish questions. He, he didn't know anything. He couldn't answer anything. But guess what? I still saw the quality of his life. I saw something different in this guy. Um, we were at lunch just literally three months ago eating uh, tacos somewhere, my wife and I, in, in our hometown. And out of the clear blue, I, I, I looked this guy up. I remembered his name. He's a dentist. I looked him up. I found him online. I called his office while we're eating lunch and said, Hey, Scott, this is, you know, remember me? Anyway, we had a, a fun little conversation. Um, I was jealous over what I saw in Laura's life, in Joel's life, even in the guy who didn't know much, Scott's life. Um, there was something real that had to do with purpose and meaning and joy, and I wanted what they had. Well, I can't tell you how important your role in God's plan is. I know Tulsa does not have a big Jewish community, but there are some here. And uh, to check it out, I actually Googled Jews in Tulsa. <laughs> Let me tell you what I found. I'm going to read it. Uh, I, this is kind of interesting. I found this online. Jewish entrepreneurs first settled in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1902, once known as the oil capital of the world. Although the Tulsa Jewish community only has an estimated 1,800 members today, several Jewish families amassed fortunes in oil and gas, resulting in the city being home to some of the Jewish world's most recognizable philanthropists, including the Kaiser, Schusterman, and Zero families. Among these three Jewish families alone, hundreds of millions of dollars are spent annually on services throughout the city, plugging the holes of significant state budget cuts and limited public services. I've, that is the, the writer of this little piece, I've been told that Tulsa is possibly the most philanthropic city per capita in the country, and that Jewish philanthropists fund close to half of all social services in the city. I didn't know that. I don't know if you knew that, but uh, it's interesting. My father-in-law once said something similar about the Jewish community of Toronto. Uh, when they came from Finland, they settled in Toronto. 
And uh, he, my, dad, my, my father-in-law had a good sense of humor. Speaking of the Jewish influence and contributions to Toronto, he once said, if all the Jews left Toronto, all that would be left would be the sign. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> that was a, that's a good Isaac quote. Uh, as, as any of you have the opportunity, the best thing you have to share as a thank you, perhaps to some of these Jewish philanthropists in Tulsa, if you, I don't know if you know any of them or if you ever, you know, the best thing you have to share as a thank you is the gospel. That's what we have to share as a thank you. Jewish people in Tulsa or anywhere else in the world may be rich, they may be poor, they may be successful, they may be not successful, but they need you to work and to pray for their salvation. What does Paul mean in verse 12 when he says, if there, that is the Jewish people's, transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? And then in verse 15 he says, even more emphatically using what could be called holy hyperbole, he says, if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Wow. I'm going to say something. Just let it, just think about it. Um, I've never put it this way before, but I think it's true and I think this is in part what Paul is talking about. More Jesus-believing Jews in the church means more spiritual riches to the church. More Jesus-believing Jews in the church means more spiritual riches to the church. When Jews come to faith in Christ, it will ultimately mean life from the dead for the world. Their role in God's plan is way out of proportion to their numbers. I'm going to show you uh, a really interesting slide here. Uh, as you can see, this is the size of the major religious groups in the world by proportion. So you can't read that small print very easily. The blue section, which is a third, is the Christian, those that, are, that, that call themselves Christians, and that's a very inclusive term here, but it's, it's close to a third of the world, okay? Then the, the darker color next door, uh, just slightly smaller, is Muslims. Uh, then we see the Hindus. Then we've got unaffiliated. Then the green is the Buddhists. Then the yellow, uh, the yellow is folk religionists. Uh, if you can see a little purple sliver at the top, that is other religions. But, but wait a minute. First of all, it tells us our job is big. Two-thirds of the world are not Christian. Our job, folks, is very big, and TCF is, is right in the middle of doing your job. Praise the Lord. But uh, where's the Jewish community on this chart? Can you spot them? Do you see where they are? Right at the top, there's a thin pink line that sticks out from the circle. Do you see it? That little thin pink line, 0.2% of the world's population is Jewish. Interesting. And yet, the Lord says when they accept Christ, that little pink line on that big circle, when they accept Christ, it says, it's going to mean life from the dead for the whole world. 
It's, it's, it's very counterintuitive and a bit confusing, right? But Paul is saying, and maybe this is the big climax to my role in your missions conference, but he's saying that somehow the Jewish people is the key to world evangelization. That may sound self-serving since I, saw, since I serve with a, a Jewish mission, but I didn't say it. <laughs> Paul said it, not me. Does it surprise you? It shouldn't, and here's why. God never chooses the largest, the strongest, to do His work. He never has. He's always chosen the smallest, the weakest, the simplest, the broken. He chose an elderly couple who couldn't conceive to birth the Jewish people. He chose a stutterer to lead the Israelites. He chose an unlikely young boy to be their greatest king and the, uh, the four, most famous forerunner of the Messiah Jesus. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses explains that God chose Israel precisely because they're that little pink line, the smallest. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 8, Paul explains that God didn't choose influential people, noble people. He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Don't take offense, but he chose you and me. All right? Well, to combat Gentile pride and misconception among the Roman believers, Paul now gives us this olive tree metaphor in verses uh, 17 to 24. As you read this passage, if you use your, if you're uh, dramatically inclined or have a good imagination, you hear a whole lot of crackling going on, of branches being snapped off. You hear a lot of snipping and notching and sealing going on as Gentile branches are being grafted in into the tree. The main point of this metaphor and of this, really, in this chapter, is that there's no ethnic superiority, no ethnic security, and no room for arrogance on the part of either Jew or Gentile. All of us in God's olive tree, Jew or Gentile, are supported by the root, who is our Messiah, the root of Jesse. Finally, and I know I'm moving you know, a bit quickly through the passage, but finally, Paul brings us to a what sounds very much like a climax, and actually, out of nowhere this morning, I'm having a, an omelet and a, a cinnamon roll from Savoy's. Savoy's, yeah, good, good cinnamon rolls. Anyway, we're having breakfast this morning, and uh, out of nowhere, Joel says, hey, Stephen, what, what do you think of uh, that statement when Paul said, all Israel will be saved? Well, that came out of nowhere. Um, and I said, well, uh, you know, if we were in a Sunday school class, we could really dive more deeply into what I think Paul is saying there. But it's a climactic statement in this chapter. And he talks in this chapter, you'll see it there, that when the deliverer comes, and I want to say when the deliverer returns, we'll see a national turning of Israel to this deliverer in faith and in repentance. I'm going to read a, a brief passage from Zechariah 12 and 13. By the way, Zechariah 
is an amazing messianic book. It speaks of uh, some passages related to the first coming of the Lord, you know, lowly and riding on a, a colt, you know, the foal of a, a donkey, and chapter 9 and some other passages. But the end of his book, chapters 12, 13, 14, are all about what we haven't yet experienced and the return of the Lord. But um, here's what we read in, in those chapters. Zechariah says, uh, the Lord speaking through him says, I will pour out on the house of David and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day the weeping in Jerusalem will be great. On that day a fountain will be opened to cleanse the... Uh, 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 excuse me, will be open to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. This is a day still yet to come where, uh, you, you know, we, we read Jesus ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives. In these chapters, we read of the Lord returning, and it says, setting his feet down on the Mount of Olives, coming to where he went to heaven, coming, and uh, it's a future we all long for. But in that day, when this happens, it says that Israel is going to recognize this pierced one and respond with tears, which I, to me imply humbling and a repentant heart and attitude, and a fountain is opened to cleanse from sin and impurity, this forgiveness for sin as they recognize and receive the pierced one, Yeshua, Jesus. Right now, my people may oppose the gospel. And because of that, in verse 28, we read, they may be considered enemies. But, but don't, don't stop there. Make no mistake. God's love for his ancient people, his chosen people, the Jews, continues to this day because Paul then continues, but they're loved on account of the patriarchs. They're not enemies that we hate. They may oppose the gospel right now, but God still loves them. God has not rejected the Jews. We, Jewish people, are still his beloved, his chosen. But now he tells us, and I'm going to end here in just a few minutes, now he tells us why God has not rejected the Jewish people. He says, because our calling is irrevocable. Hmm. It says, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Well, gifts is in the plural, and it refers to all these unmerited possessions that a gracious God has placed into our undeserving hands. The covenants, the promises, the land, the scriptures, ultimately the Messiah himself. These are all wonderful and beautiful gifts. But the word calling is singular for a very simple reason. Throughout our history, Jewish history, ever since Yemei Kedem, which means, you know, days of yore, um, God has only and ever given us one national call to be a kingdom of priests, to be a light to the nations, to be a community of witness to the peoples of the world. It was at Sinai where we first received our calling. And it was there when we heard these words through Moses, chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Uh, God revealed the purpose for our national existence. 
to be his chosen people, a kingdom of priests, a holy people. In other words, what do priests do? Well, I've never been Catholic, but maybe some of you were raised Catholic. Priests intercede for people. They pray for people before God's throne. They kind of stand as that intermediary between God and man. And they instruct people also in that intermediate position, hearing from God, understanding his ways, and teaching the people. So as a kingdom of priests, we weren't to be priests for each other because we're all priests. That's what we learned at Sinai. So we were to be priests between God. He chose us to be a kingdom of priests and then to the rest of the nations. That's our national call. A missionary people. A people of witness. And the calling, that calling has never been revoked. It's no coincidence that Peter, the apostle to the Jews, we know that, right? Writing to Jewish believers in his uh, first letter, they're scattered throughout the Mediterranean lands. He borrowed that exact language from Exodus to explain the redemptive reason that they're scattered all over the place. He says in 1 Peter 2, 8 and 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. He's he's basically translating the Hebrew of Exodus 19 here. And then he says, why? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim what God has done in your lives. Proclaim what he's doing. Be a witness. 1,500 years after we met with God at Sinai, Peter reiterated our national call to be witnesses and proclaim to the nations what God has done. Now, why did Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, begin his work in every city going to the synagogue first to bring the gospel to his fellow Jews? What's up with that? What sense does that make? Hmm. Hmm, 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 hmm. Why did he write in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel must be proclaimed first to the Jew and also to the Greek or the Gentile? Or is another translation which captures it even perhaps even better. It says, especially to the Jews and equally to the Greek or the Gentile. Why? What, why did he write that? And why did he do that in his ministry? There's a lot of answers to that question, and people will provide, you know, I know three, four different answers. But perhaps the strongest is that Paul, the apostle to the nations, the Gentiles, understood God's plan for bringing the gospel to the world. He understood the pivotal role of that Jewish call in the cause of evangelizing the nations. So Paul may have brought the gospel first to the this apostle to the Gentiles, right? First brings it to the Jewish people in the synagogues, knowing that they were called to be messengers, so that then the messengers could bring the message to the rest of the world. If that call remains to this day, and Paul says it does, then the urgency of bringing the gospel to the Jewish people remains to this day as well. The logic can't be plainer. The Jews must be given the gospel first because we can't proclaim the gospel until we believe the gospel. And we can't believe the gospel until we hear the gospel. And we can't hear the gospel until somebody brings us the gospel. Flipping it on its head, maybe it can be said that the best way to interfere with the cause of world evangelization, keep the gospel away from the Jews. But don't do that. 
Of course, the gospel must be preached to all nations by all believers, and TCF has proven its commitment to the Great Commission. Keep it up. But as you do so, please don't forget my people, the Jewish people. In Jews for Jesus, we've discovered that when we Jews proclaim the gospel in a forthright manner as Jews, people take note. People perk up. To many people, the thought of us Jews proclaiming the message of the cross seems crazy and and really strange and absurd. Uh, But God has used that very dissonance and seeming absurdity to arrest people's attention and provoke them and compel them to ask, what are these Jews saying? (laughs) Seriously, everywhere we go, every country we go, and we do evangelism, people stop. People stare, and people approach us to talk. Paul closes this chapter with a a doxology, an explosion of praise. Praise for the depths of God's wisdom and the wonder of his ways. Who but God could have devised a plan to bestow mercy on Jews and Gentiles in a way that binds us inextricably and equally together? My people's spiritual stumble resulted in mercy to once disobedient Gentiles. And likewise, you Gentiles who have received God's mercy are now to demonstrate that mercy to my Jewish people that we may finally fulfill our national purpose and bring life from the dead. How will you apply all this, TCF, as a church? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. I wish I could say, but my best encouragement is ask God. Ask God. His answer will be much better than my answer. I have, an, I have one little thing here, and uh, I, I, I threw it in at the very end. And I, and I prayed, Lord, I don't know if I should say it, not say it, leave it in, leave it out. I'm going to go for it. Why not? Uh, I'm not suggesting this for the church, so don't take this wrong. But it's an interesting historical application of, what, uh, of how it worked and how it looked for at least uh, you know, a few interesting individuals, one of whom you've probably heard of. And, and again, I'm not suggesting this for TCF, but it's, you know... Got to get creative. How, how, how does the Lord want you to apply it? I don't know. But um, you've heard of Hudson Taylor, that great missionary. I, I don't even know. Was he British? Yeah, thought so. So a British missionary to China. He started the China Inland Mission. Yeah. He went there. He acculturated, grew somehow. I don't know how old he was, but he's still able to grow long hair. Wore it in a long pigtail like uh, the Chinese men would do in that day. He wore a robe like the Chinese would wear at that time in history and uh, had an incredible uh, ministry there. Real interesting little anecdote about Hudson Taylor. And I have, I don't, it's in a different dock on my laptop. I have the actual words of his wife describing this and how it started. But rather than read her words, which are old British English, I'll just read the description. Apparently, uh, on the first day of every year, during his time as the head of the China Inland Mission, which is now Overseas Missionary Fellowship, at least the time of this writing, uh, Hudson Taylor sent a donation by check 
to the Mild May Mission to the Jews, based in London, on which was written on the check, To the Jew First. And at the same time, John Wilkinson, who was the leader of the Mild May Mission to the Jews, which is now also renamed in our generation, he would, in response, send a personal check to the China Inland Mission with the note, and also to the Gentile. It was kind of cool. Yeah, it was kind of cool. So um, I don't know how these words that I've shared with you and this, uh, this journey through Romans chapter 11 will, if ever, be applied to TCF. Maybe it's already being applied in some ways. I don't know. But um, God, God will lead and God will show, and I don't have to worry about that part. <laughs> So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and then call Joel up to uh, bring us to the next part of the service. Lord God, you are great and greatly to be praised. Gadol umhulal ma'od. Great and greatly to be praised. You, your ways and your wonders are uh, beyond our comprehension, but you enable us to understand what we need to understand, to know you and to follow you and to share your love with others. Thank you that you have blessed this church in so many ways and that you've blessed our lives individually in so many ways. Thank you that you're here this morning. I trust you that you'll continue to bless this church I thank you publicly for the opportunity to have been here and been their mission speaker this year. Uh, may the good parts of how you used me remain and continue to be with them and contribute to who they are and what they do. And the other parts, uh, let it be forgotten. And Lord, uh, in terms of this message this morning and your message in Romans 11, I pray that you'll guide the church as they ponder it, as they think about it and talk it over. Thank you, Lord, for the leadership you've raised in this church. We are yours, and you are ours. We love you. We pray, B'Shem Yeshua Meshichenu, in the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen.